This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome once again to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the Editor-in-Chief of BNE Intellinews. Today I'm joined by Alfred Gussenbauer, a former Chancellor of Austria and the head of the Social Democratic Party. At the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet bloc, there was a lot of optimism. Uh, and the countries in that part of the world started to transform, and it had a material impact on Austria in particular. I went to go and uh, interview the Austrian guys at the stock market, and they say that the stock market took off because the hinterland was back. Suddenly you could export east as well as west. Um, But more recently, particularly since the 2008 crisis, We've got ourselves now into a series of political and economic crises, and it all seems to be going wrong. And to me, to be completely honest, I'm not sure exactly what the problem is, why everything has gone south. One million dollar question that you're putting to me. I think, uh, first of all, one has to understand that some of the Central and Eastern European countries that have been mainly dependent on foreign direct investment were affected uh, by the crisis more than some others. On the other hand, it's true that countries like Poland had an excellent economic performance also during the crisis. So to take the economic decline as the major argument for some of the political troubles Uh, would be Mm short-sighted. I think an important element is that all those countries in the East have been under the suppression of uh, the Soviet Union for several decades. Uh, Many of them have not really enjoyed something like national sovereignty. And the Soviet rule was an imposed integration against the will of most of the peoples in Central and Eastern Europe. And only after a short period of time of national independence, the countries decided to become members of the European Union, which is a concept of shared sovereignty on basis of uh, voluntary will of the people. But did the people of the Czech Republic, of Hungary, of Romania, of Poland really want to share their sovereignty already after a short period of time when they had national sovereignty? I don't think so. I think their view to Europe was much more, okay, we are going to get the living standard of uh, Western Europe much uh, quicker and much easier than if we would be on our own. We are going to receive support and funds and infrastructure. So did they really deeply believe in the specific shape of the European project as defined by Maastricht? I'm not sure. And I think that when this Europe, this Maastricht Europe, uh, got under pressure with the economic crisis, got under pressure for 
many political reasons, uh, the desire, the natural desire, uh, in some of the countries of Eastern Europe for more national sovereignty uh, re-emerged. So, if I could paraphrase, during the first part when they joined, these countries were in transition in so much as they just needed a hell of a lot of investment, work, basic infrastructure, market mechanisms. However, there's a political dimension to this, and it hasn't really become apparent to them until now when, the, as you say, now they're, they're under economic pressure, when these values that come with the EU membership have become that relevant, and they're, um, they're not happy about that. I think uh, we have to understand that the European project as we know it right now, was already designed when the new member countries in Central and Eastern Europe became member. So they didn't really have a say in how this Europe, the European Union, should and will look like. They became members in a club that has been already established. And therefore, I think they have quite some difficulties to adopt this very specific form and shape that the European Union took, because they didn't really have a say and a stake in the development of, of this organization. And, and therefore, to, to many of the countries, it, uh, it uh, sounds to be a little bit alien, in a way. Yeah? They, they really were not there. They didn't craft it, you know. Uh, and therefore, the identification with the European project is much more difficult in the Czech Republic or in Hungary than it is in France or uh, in Italy. So we had in the UK Brexit. Yeah. And Brexit was specifically about the problems, perceived problems, real or not, uh, about working with the EU, mainly the bureaucracy, um, the, 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 the sort of faceless uh, Brussels in charge of everything and making what we at home were saying were stupid decisions about what kind of pillows we could have. And underlying that, there is problems with the EU. It's not efficient. And you can point to some basic things, like you've got a monetary union without a fiscal union, which again, in the good times, doesn't make a difference, but now in the bad times, it does. And we're sitting here today in Greece. And Greece has also been um, a victim of its own success in so much as it could borrow so cheaply because it was an EU member that it didn't bother to make any of the reforms here either. Even in the Western Union, we had the same problems. So, what is it going forward? Are we going to fix this institution? Some people are talking about leaving, and the Brits have done it, or at least going to do it if they press the Article 50 button. I think um, many of the reasons that you give that could be a reason why one is critical about Europe uh, do not affect the Brits because problems within the monetary union uh, only affect you if you're a member of the monetary union and part of the euro, which Britain wasn't. And uh, the complaints in Britain about uh, the immigration of uh, foreign labor uh, the amount of people coming from member states of the European Union are only a small percentage of the immigration that was ongoing uh, to Britain from the uh, countries of the Commonwealth of Nations. So uh, I think in Britain it's a 
it's a different story. And it also has to do with uh, the anti-European Union propaganda that happened uh, in the United Kingdom for quite a long time. And if you are looking in this Eurobarometer, uh, the approval rate of the European Union for decades was the lowest in the United Kingdom. Therefore, it's no surprise that this is the country that took the decision to get out, uh, even if I think uh, it's not beneficial uh, for the British people. But isn't it a precursor to the breakup of the European Union? I, mean, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I think that uh, we are not going to the, in the direction of the United States of Europe. I do not see that for a foreseeable future. We are definitely in a period where the cooperation within Europe has to take a different form than the traditional way of European integration, which means transferring more power and competences to Brussels. This definitely will not work. Uh, the second thing is uh, the deal between uh, uh, Prime Minister Cameron and the European Union in case UK stays and remains within the European Union had quite some interesting elements for the entire of the European Union. If you look to the clause of the possibility of the differentiation uh, in social policies, what, uh, what uh, depends, for instance, the payment of social transfers, I think would have been an interesting thing for the entire European Union, not only for the Brits. And I think we, we need some of these uh, differentiations, uh, which would make uh, the European project uh, more acceptable. And I also have nothing against giving back some of the competences to, to the national parliaments. I mean, I'm not in favor of a Brussels plutocracy that is uh, going to uh, interfere in cases where a European regulation simply is not necessary. I think we have to understand that Europe has to be strong, but to be limited to the levels of uh, problems and uh, decisions where we need Europe, where we cannot uh, arrange things alone. And this understanding to get that through will, uh, uh, will require some more debates. Uh, but the Central and Eastern Europeans, in a way, are a good, uh, a good uh, tool in order to initiate debates like that, uh, especially uh, after, the Brexit, after the Brexit happened. So Austria is not thinking about doing an Ostex or... Exit, you mean. Exit. <laughs> no, Austria is not thinking about an exit, and I think people who are proposing such an exit are doing no, no favor to themselves because it would uh, uh, definitely uh, reduce their political influence in Austria. Uh, Austrians are very critical about Brussels bureaucracy. A lot of criticism going on, but at the same time, the Austrians understand that we as an open economy in the center of Europe, uh, we largely benefited from, uh, from, our, uh, from our membership in the Union in the direction to the east and in the direction to the west. And we are among those who would also like the countries of the Western Balkan to join because we believe that peace and stability in this area of Europe where so far the last war happened uh, in 1991 
peace and stability will only come if we can integrate those countries into the European Union. But there's a fatigue, an expansion fatigue. I mean, that was highlighted by the Dutch referendum on the Ukraine to ratify the DCFTA, the trade agreement, um, which suggests as well, and again, um, the, the Turkish EU membership thing has been dragging on forever. And at least in Britain, as part of the Brexit campaigning, they made it clear that Turkey would never join. I think Merkel's gone on record as well saying that she doesn't want to see Turkey in the EU. And it, I don't know, countries like Serbia are doing very well and should be maybe made members, but it doesn't seem that anyone has any um, enthusiasm for adding yet more countries, uh, particularly in the wake of you know what happened here in Greece. Do you think there's going to be more expansion? First of all, I have to say I also do not see Turkey as a member of the European Union. Uh, this would uh, go too far, most probably. But uh, I see the countries of the Western Balkans, especially Serbia and Albania, as the next members of the European Union. And uh, there are already the uh, entrance uh, negotiations taking place. Might take five years, six years, seven years, whatever. Uh, but somewhere in the beginning of the 20s, it's going to happen. Uh, and there is no reason uh, why a country like Serbia that is doing fine, taking a lot of responsibility also now in the crisis that has been uh, provoked by the migration and by the refugees, why a country like that should not become a member of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And what about Ukraine? I mean, uh, they, they talk and have these, these referendums about joining the EU, but you know, officially it's never been offered to them. And I think as part of the DCFTA, it was explicitly excluded from the deal was that it would be tied in any way to eventual EU membership. I think that uh, if the Ukraine stays together, the Ukraine cannot politically and economically survive if it is taking one side. So either to decide we align with Russia or to say we align uh, with Europe and the West. I think. And this will last years till we come to that on basis of the conflict that we, uh, we are still in there. But at the end of the day, the Ukraine must become the symbol of the cooperation between the European Union and Russia. This is the only useful perspective that they have ties to both in economic and political terms. This is the only way to get this country out, uh, out of this mess. And it's an impasse now. I mean, everyone points to Minsk too, but you know, most of the major deadlines in Minsk too were set for the end of 2015, such as changing the constitution, didn't happen. Both sides blaming the other, um, with some justification. Uh, and we're kind of stuck, but it's left us in this, this confrontation with Russia. Um, where, where do you stand on how to deal with this No, situation? Austria definitely belongs to uh, the camp that is supporting... Uh, a phasing out of the sanctions uh, and trying to get back to uh, more normal relations. Of course, this cannot happen unconditionally, as we know, uh, but uh, our target for sure is that uh, we create a situation where we get rid of the sanctions. So go back to business as normal with Russia? Uh, but not unconditionally. Yes, yes. And something like the Crimea, I mean, that's a difficult one. I mean, the Russians have annexed it. 
having spent nearly 20 years in Russia, I can tell you the Russians have no intention of giving it back ever. Well, even my liberal friends say, yeah, yeah, it looks bad, but at the end of the day, it's, it's ours. But, you know, it was Ukraine's sovereign territory, uh, and it was, in effect, annexed. I mean, is everyone going to kind of just ignore that issue and help it go away? The problem is, can one ignore such a violation of international law. History has proven that once in a while you have to sit together and uh, try to fix a deal. So you are not uh, uh, looking away from it, but at the end of the day, if you develop uh, a realistic perspective, uh, you will not see a withdrawal of the Russians from Crimea. Does that mean that one accepts that? No. It depends on the deal, and it depends on the understanding that you're going to develop. Will it happen today? No. It might happen in some years, and maybe as part of a larger deal. So I'm always in favor of staying to the fundamental principles, but at the same time opening up avenues where you can get pragmatic solutions. So we started the interview saying that there was this you know, period of euphoria when uh, the Cold War ended and some optimism, and then we've moved in this decade full of this nasty economic and political crisis. Just briefly, um, what's your prognosis? How is this going to play out? Uh, when, when will it improve is uh, uh, a question I cannot answer because my prophetic skills are not that developed. Um, I mean, we have gone through periods of economic stagnation. We have gone through periods of eurosclerosis where nothing was moving on uh, in Europe for, for quite some time. So it's not for the first time that we are <laughs> we're living in times like today, uh, and I think it's a little bit naive uh, to think that the world and the economy and the political situation is permanently improving like a linear curve. You know, I mean, history is telling us uh, something else. What we have to do and what we try to do is, whenever uh, setbacks occurring, to soften the effect of the setbacks on the population, on the, on the most vulnerable groups, and trying to limit the damage, so that when things are going to be better, they are starting from a higher level. When this will happen, I don't know. But I'm too old to be a pessimist. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Pleasure. Okay.